sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please uh, come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used to research our show and the uh, individual here to my right along with uh, managing domestic duties serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from uh, these uh, sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. Well, it's been a while and I suppose we should uh, wish our listeners a happy new year. Yes. Happy New Year. Though, given all that's been going on, that's a dubious proposition. However, it is nice to uh, get back in the swing of things and to have Mrs. Carswell back to help after her trip uh, home over Christmas. And then we had another late Christmas once I got back, more or less. Yes, we ended up having a sort of surprise gift exchange. I was completely surprised. I'd already gotten the Christmas bonus before I left. So, to see you actually made me a gift. I had no idea you could make things uh, like that. It really wasn't that complicated. We'd done uh, simple sand castings when I was in school, and the design was just lines pressed into damp sand. It's very rudimentary, as Minoan art tends to be. That's the reason I chose the design. But in silver, and it's fairly large, it must have been expensive. Oh, I should explain that Mrs. Carswell's talking about a uh, silver, uh, well, it's not exactly a medallion because there's nothing for hanging. It's, it's just a decorative disc, uh, a, a roundel is what it's called. That was the description of the artifact I copied. It was an embossed roundel from a Minoan tomb. But with a B design. Well, yes, that seemed appropriate. It certainly is, but I don't know how you did it. I, I mean... You must have needed all sorts of special tools and equipment. There was leftover sand from a masonry project in the basement, but I did have to order a little tabletop casting furnace. I wanted it for another project anyway. I did end up ordering special casting sand after reading up on it all a bit more. But the silver! Well, uh, to tell the truth, that's what happened to the missing candlestick you were wondering about on Thanksgiving melted it down. Oh, well, it was still a sacrifice. I, I had leftover silver. It just seemed a shame to waste it. You mean you cast something else? Well, um, we don't need to go on and on about the gift I made. What else did you make? Uh, we should talk about the gift you gave me. I guess that was also a sort of a casting project, too, the candle. Oh, no, we don't use molds. We dip the traditional way. But it's beeswax from your family's hives, going way back. It's an interesting idea. You should explain it to the listeners. Oh, well, of course. It's called the Year Candle because this is a family tradition that we've had for generations. Every year on New Year's, we make a set of candles, 12 candles. For the uh, 12 months, right? Yes. And the wax used mostly comes from what the bees produce that year. But we also melt in wax shavings from each previous year. 
Mother keeps a whole cabinet of candles. There are 175 now, going back to 1846. That's seven generations. Oh, that's, that's pretty incredible. Your family certainly has a lot of special uh, traditions. Yes, and that's 525 B generations, since there are about three life cycles per year, and since we're using 10-frame hives, about 20,000 each. 24 hives, that means those candles represent the work of 252 million bees. Oh. I didn't just do that in my head. We figure it out together every year. Well, I really appreciate getting my very own year candle, especially now that I know what goes into it. You can burn it however you want, but you can follow how I burn mine if you want it to last the year. That's the traditional way we do it. You don't have to do the meditations, of course. Uh, Looking into the candle flame, I presume? Yes. It doesn't have to be every night, but certain nights. In our family, certain nights are more important, like New Year's Eve, of course. Then there are the dreams that come. Since the candle represents the collective wisdom of 252 million bees, you know there's something to it. Uh, 250 million bees can't be wrong. No, I wish they were, though. The New Year's dream I had wasn't good. Well, it's not surprising, given the year so far. No, it didn't have to do with anything outside. It was about this place. There was blood right here in the library. A huge puddle. I I think things will be fine here. I believe our uh, Mr. Petrovich problem has been resolved in your absence. I didn't even tell Mother about the dream. I didn't want to worry her. I hope she doesn't listen to this one. I wouldn't worry about people listening. I think we're losing listeners even as we speak. Oh. This chatter going on and on. Sorry. No, so uh, to get started, episode 62, Waxworks. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. I uh, should apologize that I only have time for this one episode in January as I was uh, out sick earlier, though not that kind of sick, just a bug having nothing to do with our pandemic. Um, But this episode is a bit longer, so I hope that's uh, of some compensation. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors, who receive monthly rewards, including uh, short bonus episodes. And I'll have more on all that at the end of our show. Do you dare to spend a night of terror in the Wax Museum? You can't tell the living from the dead. Come down these stairs with me to the Black Museum. Nightmare in Wax. The museum is now open. You will meet some of the most around this chamber of horrors. Terror in the Wax Museum. There's a waxworks museum here. I haven't seen one since I was a kid. Come on. There are more wax museum movies than you might think. 
127 actually, according to a book that came out last year, Wax Museum Movies, a comprehensive filmography. And nearly all are in the horror genre, of course, thanks to the uncanny nature of these figures. Seeming as if they should move and speak and look us in the eye, they're like a recently expired corpse, causing dread somehow. Not by what they will do, but what they suddenly cannot. She's beautiful. She's almost alive. Are they flesh and blood, or are they wax? Are they alive, or are they dead? She's lovely. Perhaps it's not surprising that this strange existential fear has often been literalized in films that blur the line between wax figures and corpses. The most famous of these being the 1953 Vincent Price production, House of Wax. Though I, I really shouldn't call it that since there was no such thing as a Vincent Price film, or Vincent Price as we know him at the time. This was his first horror role, here playing the proprietor of a waxworks gallery in Gaslight here in New York. The end will come quickly, my love. There is a pain beyond pain. And Don't think it's a spoiler at this point to reveal that his figures are created by covering murder victims in wax. It's Kathy's body under the wax. I knew it. I knew it all the time. There are hints of the Phantom of the Opera in the story, too, with the wax masking flesh that's disfigured rather than dead. And its big draw, of course, uh, may have been the 3D, as the film was the first color release to use that technology. Ironically, the success of the technique must have been something of an uphill battle, as the film's director, Andre de Toth, had no ability to perceive the effect himself because he was blind in one eye. The fresh talent of Price, atmospheric setting, and this uh, technological gimmick all may have contributed to whatever effectiveness the production had as a horror film. But there's also something in the institution of the Wax Museum itself, in its history, as we'll see, something that inclines everything toward horror. I guess that's what people want or what they expect from wax museums, as Mr. Price's character declares upon reopening his museum. I'm going to give the people what they want. Sensation, horror, shock. Send them out in the streets to tell their friends how wonderful it is to be scared to death. While House of Wax is the best known in this genre, it's not original. In fact, it's a remake of the 1933 film Mystery of the Wax Museum, a short 75-minute feature which coincidentally also makes use of cutting-edge technology of its day, that is, Technicolor's early two-color process, which produces imagery that leans heavily into the... Uh, pinks and uh, aquas. Its subject matter may have also been ahead of its time, as the New York Times found it too ghastly for comfort. Today it seems much less remarkable, and aside from its peculiar color process and more famous 3D offspring, it's perhaps only noteworthy for its lead casting of Faye Ray, who that very same year had put in her iconic performance in the Paw of King Kong. The success of the 1953 film, at one point it was actually to be parlayed into a television series, though it never took off with the pilot episode ending up repurposed as a theatrical release in 1966 as Chamber of Horrors, an uh, unlikely tale of a pair of wax museum proprietors who also happened to investigate grisly crimes. 
Once again, technical gimmickry, a la William Castle, played a role in this one. You will be warned by the fear flasher. And the horror horn. Watch for the fear flasher. Listen for the horror horn in... The wax-covered corpse motif shows up again and again over the years in a segment featuring Peter Cushing in 1971's Amicus Horror Anthology. The House That Dripped Blood. And then again in 1973's... Terror in the Wax Museum. But this uh, corpse under wax motif is not the only one driving wax museum movies. Do you dare to spend a night of terror? Other frequent themes are stories of overnights in wax museums ending in madness or death, or of uh, supernaturally animated figures, as in the very first example of the genre, a British short from 1907 called The Professor and His Wax Works. One universal of all the wax museum horror films would be the presence of figures representing notorious criminals and tyrants from history, with those from French history particularly prominent. So of course we'll be looking at Madame Tussaud, whose life was uncomfortably intertwined with the horrors of revolution and the guillotine. But we won't be starting her tale in France or in England, but Baron Switzerland, where she was born as Maria Grossholz. They'll keep referring to her as Tussaud just to avoid confusion. Actually, her connection to public executions could be said to extend back further than the revolution as the occupation of her father and grandfather was recorded in tax ledgers as... Executioner and Knacker. A uh, knacker, by the way, is one who removes carcasses or sick animals from farms and public lands, hauling them off for rendering. So, uh, not really a high-status position or uh, an auspicious start. And furthermore, in her memoir, written in 1838, uh, it's recorded that during military service, her father was... So mutilated with wounds that his forehead was laid bare and his lower jaw shot away and supplied by a silver plate. But in fact, Herr Grossholz died two months before Tussaud's birth, and actually it was this that set her on her course as... Her widowed mother then sought work as a housekeeper to one Philippe Courteus, a modeler in wax who's said to have some connection to her training in the medical field, possibly crafting wax anatomical teaching models. Marie soon began assisting the master in his workshop and affectionately adopted the term uncle to refer to him, though it's actually widely speculated that he was, in fact, whether this was known to her or not, her biological father. In 1765, Courtius, along with his housekeeper and young assistant, were invited to France by Louis-François, the Prince of Conti, who had been impressed by waxworks exhibited in Bern. Courtius quickly established himself within a community of artists supported there by the prince. Through these uh, social contacts, figures like Voltaire and Benjamin Franklin were soon visiting the workshop to sit for sculptures or to have life casts taken. And exhibitions of figures such as these, or Courteous's uh, very popular tableau of the royal family dining together in Versailles offered the public a sort of access to famous contemporary figures even more immediate or real in some ways than what's provided by today's photojournalists. But what really distinguished these shows was the presentation of the infamous alongside the famous, displaying figures such as the 
scandal-ridden charlatan and hypnotist Anton Mesmer, or the uh, provocatively reclining figure of Louis XV's mistress, Madame Dubarry, the latter, which was uh, mechanized with a subtly heaving bosom and is still displayed in Madame Tussauds London under the name Sleeping Beauty, uh, dating all the way back to 1765, this is the oldest figure in their uh, collection. While uh, Courtius uh, initially showed his work at fairs, he eventually established his uh, Salon of Wax, as it was called, on the Boulevard du Temple, nicknamed the Boulevard of Crime, thanks not to uh, the prevalence of pickpockets or robberies, but to the countless melodramas presented in the theaters packed in along the street. In this uh, thriving entertainment mecca, also hosting magic lantern parlors and uh, next door to Astley's Circus, a venue for equestrian and Comedia dell'arte performances, Courtius's uh, Salon of Wax quickly became a standout attraction. As an adult, Tussaud took over more of Courtius's enterprise, uh, developing her own contacts along the way. And one was uh, Louis XVI's sister, Madame Elisabeth, who was eager to learn wax sculpture in order to craft religious figurines and votives. Tutoring Elizabeth in his skill, Tussaud and Courtius gained access to the royal family itself. But as revolution fomented in Paris, ties with Versailles became a uh, mixed blessing at best, and a good deal of Tussaud's memoir describes the dangerous years she spent navigating those waters. Once the monarchy was abolished and September massacres began, Tussaud was compelled to show her allegiance by documenting, in these days before photojournalism, the victories of the Republic. And this could be grisly work. Tussaud's memoir, which um, is curiously written in third person, describes a scene involving her friend and the Queen's household superintendent, Princess de Lamballe, who'd uh, just met with the guillotine. Her head was immediately taken to Madame Tussaud. The savage murderers stood over her, while she, shrinking with horror, was compelled to take a cast from the features of the unfortunate princess. The features, beauteous even in death, and the auburn tresses, although smeared with blood, still in parts, were unpolluted by the ruthless touch of her assassins, and shone with all their natural richness and brilliance. Eager to retain a memento of the hapless princess, Madame Tussaud proceeded to perform her melancholy task whilst surrounded by the brutal monsters whose hands were bathed in the blood of the innocent. A more reserved eyewitness account from the French National Archives and uh, quoted in Hector Fleischmann's book The Guillotine in 1793 describes Courtius creating a wax model from the severed head of Madame de Saint-Amarante. He made up the face with a posthumous smile, rendered her beautiful and charming. And two days before the storming of the Bastille, the mob was said to have broken into the Salon of Wax, and stolen likenesses of the Duc d'Orléans and the finance minister Necker in order to stage a mock funeral in the streets. Other stories have Tussaud's imperishable wax heads marched about on pikes once the original heads from which they were molded began to fall apart or were destroyed through abuse. 
during these same years that Toussaint and Courtius uh, created waxworks associated with the terrors of the revolution, their collection grew to include not only aristocratic figures of scandal's reputation, but the low-born criminals whose deeds uh, fascinated the public. These were segregated into a room Courtius had dubbed the Vault of the Great Thieves. When Courtius died in 1794, Dussault inherited this collection and the concept of a segregated display dedicated to human villainy. By 1795, she had married a civil engineer by the name of François Tussaud, and so it was under that name, no longer Grossholz, that she traveled to London in 1802 to accept an invitation to exhibit her work alongside uh, phantasmagoria shows presented at the uh, Lyceum Theatre by the Belgian magician and magic lantern impresario Paul Philidor. Unable to return to France thanks to the Napoleonic Wars, for the next three decades, Tussaud mounted temporary exhibitions throughout London, Edinburgh, and Glasgow, and figures of a darker nature and her work associated with the terrors of the revolution she continued to show in a segregated space, initially advertised rather innocuously as The Separate Room or The Second Salon a space she rather demurely and ironically described in handbills as inadvisable for ladies to visit. By 1835, when the show finally settled in its permanent London home on Baker Street, the separate room had acquired a more exciting name, one embraced as an enduring metaphor of the English language. The Chamber of Horrors. Tussaud's tableau of Jean-Paul Marat murdered in his bathtub, and the heads of revolutionary figures like Robespierre displayed on pikes and cast directly from originals that had tumbled from the guillotine, at least according to her memoirs and uh, all Tussaud's uh, promotional materials ever since. Uh, these were soon supplemented by other historic villains from Britain and to the continent, and by the mid-1840s, another prize artifact was added, a weighted guillotine blade obtained by Tussaud's sons on a Parisian relic hunting trip from the grandson of Charles-Henri Sanson, the executioner of Louis XVI, and probably another 3,000 poor souls. And for nearly a century, this uh, gruesome artifact was displayed at Tussauds alongside a full-scale recreation of the dreaded device. My name is Monsieur Guillotine. I've invented it. A wall. During the French Revolution, a certain doctor invented a labor-saving device to check the face of the headsman's axe. Ivan the Terrible, so Attila the Hunt, was this Lizzie machine is cutting off the hair. Lucretia Borgia, Bluebeard. Poison, strangled, stabbers, rippers. In the Wax Museum. Horror. Shock. Terror. 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 Sometimes the London-based satirical magazine of the day, Punch, is credited with coining Tussauds' term, Chamber of Horrors. And while that's not true, the magazine did devote a fair amount of ink to decrying the public's fascination with gruesome crimes and public executions and what they called London's... Murder Mania. Insisting this is all fueled by the work of Maurice Tussaud, whom they referred to as a wax witch. The publication featured a cartoon of children playing with figures labeled as murder dolls, representing Tussaud's waxworks. The article accompanying the cartoon sarcastically praised Tussaud's sculpture of Maria Manning, recently executed alongside her husband, Frederick, as the result of some uh, 
murderous love triangle, you see um, these words. Never did assassination look so amiable, so like a quality to be introduced to the bosom of families. Like murder dolls for kids, that is. The wax murderess, nonetheless, remained in the Chamber of Horrors for a record-breaking 122 years. And all the while, Madame Tussauds energetically fed the Victorians' appetite for murder and mayhem, updating displays as new crimes were committed and striving to add authenticity in intriguing ways. While it may have worked in France, Tussauds' artists couldn't always wheedle their way in with the British hangmen to make castings directly from the faces of executed criminals, uh, nor could they sculpt from life while their subjects sat in prison. And visual reference was hard to come by as drawings and photography were not permitted in courtrooms. But not to be deterred, Tussauds' grandson John devised an ingenious solution, a working camera rigged inside the bowler hat he wore to trials of those they would sculpt. The desire for greater authenticity also extended to the acquisition of artifacts related to the crimes. In our Gallows episode, I mentioned Tussauds obtaining from hangmen the rope used and even clothing worn by the convict, but there were many other examples. For their uh, tableau dedicated to the murderous Mary Piercy, the museum acquired the blood-drenched stroller she used to transport her victims, and the contents of the blood-spattered kitchen where the deed was done. On opening day in 1890, the Piercy installation drew some 30,000 visitors. It was also during the Victorian era that a rumor surfaced that Tussauds offered a financial reward of some sort for anyone brave enough to spend the night in the Chamber of Horrors, a motif eagerly embraced in plays and stories and films for years to come. Do you dare to spend a night? Now, to be clear, exhibitions of wax figures for entertainment is not something that began with Madame Tussaud. Already in the 1700s, there are mentions of uh, waxwork shows in London, including the clockwork figures advertised in a 1740 handbill as... The Moving Waxworks of the Royal Court of England. This exhibition of 140 mechanized figures was assembled by one Mrs. Mary on Fleet Street, which seemed to become a popular location for such attractions. And even earlier, by 1710, Fleet Street was the home of the more long-lived Mrs. Salmon's Waxworks. Contemporary advertisements for this attraction again suggest that clockwork animation played a large part in Salmon's shows, mentioning the Turkish seraglio in Waxwork, the fatal sisters that spin, reel, and cut the thread of man's life. An old woman flying from time, who shakes his head and hourglass with sorrow at seeing age so unwilling to die. Nothing but life can exceed the motions of the heads, hands, eyes, etc. of these figures. There were also depictions of criminals like the famous highwayman Dick Turpin and other darker tableaus anticipating those that would later be found in Tussauds Chamber of Horrors. Uh, Charles I on the scaffold is mentioned in the uh, handbill as well as the rights of Moloch or the unhumane cruelty with the manner of Canaanite ladies offering up their firstborn infants. Also illustrated were fantastic legends, including 
Margaret, Countess of Henningberg, lying on a bed of state with her 365 children, all born at one birth and baptized by the names of John and Elizabeths, occasioned by the rash wish of a poor beggar woman. The uh, legend here, attached to Margaret of Hennenberg since the 14th century, involves uh, Margaret insulting a passing beggar and mother of twins by suggesting that the infants weren't fathered by two different men. The curse uttered by the offended woman results in Margaret birthing 365 mouse-sized babies, and they're all placed into some sort of vessel and baptized before dying shortly later, is the male half being christened as John, and remaining females christened as Elizabeth. The uh, grotesque or salacious also inspired Mrs. Salmon's uh, waxwork scenes, including... Hermonia, a Roman lady whose father offended the emperor, was sentenced to be starved to death, but was preserved by sucking his daughter's breast. Also to be found on Fleet Street in the 1790s was Rockstrow's Museum, though uh, more of a uh, public uh, cabinet of curiosities, in, including uh, taxidermy and bones and busts, uh, mummies, shell mosaics and the like. It did also feature wax anatomical models, including a full-sized female figure equipped with glass veins that demonstrated the circulation of the blood, while the heart and lungs beat and inflated realistically. Fleet Street was a sort of winter quarters for a number of exhibitors that during better weather brought their shows to London's fairs, particularly the uh, Southwark and Bartholomew fairs. Madame Tussaud, during her traveling years before landing on Baker Street, also showed at fairs, as did Courtius in France. Uh, Charles Dickens mentions waxworks at Greenwich Fair in uh, Sketches by Boz also mentions a Fleet Street Waxworks collection, probably Mrs. Salmon, in uh, David Copperfield, and compared Great Expectations, Perpetual Spinster, Miss Havisham, to... Some ghastly waxwork at the fair. But his uh, interest in waxworks really blooms in the 1840 novel, The Old Curiosity Shop, which um, actually spends less time in the titular shop, then in following the on-road adventures of its young heroine, Little Nell. Uh, part of the volume has her apprentice to a cranky, alcoholic proprietor of a traveling wax show, a uh, Mrs. Jarley, who's uh, clearly inspired in certain ways by Madame Tussaud. Along the way, Dickens provides an entertaining description of Jarley's uh, less-than-masterful sculptures. Standing more or less unsteadily upon their legs, with their eyes very wide open and their nostrils very much inflated and all their countenances expressing great surprise. All the ladies and the gentlemen were looking intensely nowhere and staring with extraordinary earnestness at nothing. Published in 1896, a much more obscure, ostensibly non-fiction book, Joe Smith and His Waxworks describes the life of another traveling showman. Written by the nephew of its subject, it begins at an auction with the purchase, sight unseen, of a decrepit collection of wax figures on which uh, Smith stakes his fortunes. 
It goes on to reveal a trove of details and techniques involved in running such a show in 19th century Britain. Um, Smith's collection includes a poor man's version of Tussauds or Curtius's uh, Sleeping Beauty, complete with wheezy inflating chest, a uh, mechanized beheading scene that refuses even once to work properly, a cave of robbers tableau, and the ever-expanding collection of murderers actually repurposed older figures, as he explains. The hair on the old figures was generally rusty, and the wax was brown or green or dirty. This had a neglected look which was recognized to be very suitable for a murderer. Otherwise, our murderers were originally figures of very respectable persons, as Lord Byron, Lord Broom, Richard III, and George III in the old show. If the figure desirable to convert into a murderer had originally a kind of smile or smirk upon his face, this did not come in so well for the murderer, but with a warm skewer you could easily bring the corners of the mouth down and colour the place over to make him look as savage as desirable. He then goes on to describe one murderer that was particularly beloved, causing bottlenecks in the line of visitors snaking through. Which cord the murderer had first cut his child's throat, which was represented in our show by a large doll with a piece of red braid tied round its neck. Then he shot his wife. The pointed pistol in his left hand had a piece of cotton wool to show the smoke still issuing from the barrel, and then cut his own throat with his left hand so that the whole affair appeared to be going on at once. It was really quite exciting. And Smith explains the need for constant updates on Murderer's Row. When a show comes to a fair every year, the same visitors get familiar with the old figures after a time, so that a new murderer is always an attractive novelty. If there are not enough murders naturally as they occur, we like to have them invented and put in our plays and tales. People must have them somehow, or be disappointed and get low-spirited. And no one wants that. The feelings of horror waxworks provoke uh, goes much further back than the uh, villains of uh, Tussauds, uh, Chamber of Horse in London or Paris, or even uh, Mrs. Salmon's displays. In the Middle Ages and even earlier in Imperial Rome, wax figures have been used in funerary rites to represent the dead, and this in a way that purposely uh, blurred the line between the living and the dead, stirring that feeling of the uncanny and the unease we naturally feel observing a figure that may or may not be alive or human. Can't tell the living, are they fresh and blood from the or dead? Or are they wax? Are they alive? Or are they fresh and blood? In our Ghastly Saint Stories episode, exploring the topic of uh, allegedly uh, miraculously preserved bodies of saints, I've already discussed how wax has been used to repair or replace disintegrating flesh, creating that sense of... Uh, uncanny confusion between natural artifice and a supernatural body. But something similar transpired in England's royal funerals, beginning with that of Edward III in 1377. 
slower modes of transportation for nobility coming in from throughout the land for the occasion, and the lack of modern embalming required that recumbent effigies of wax and wood were displayed in processions in place of the perishable corpse. By 1680, with the death of Charles II, the practice had changed with the king less deceptively, if that's the right word, represented, not as reclining in death, but as sitting up and wide-eyed. After their use in funerals, these uh, effigies were deposited in the crypts of Westminster Abbey uh, into something similar to a wax museum, England's first in that case. Sacristans, pleased with donations collected from visitors to the crypts, soon uh, seemed to have played a role in enlarging the collection beyond heads of state so that by uh, 1805, figures like that of Admiral Nelson were being created, not necessarily for funeral use, but as a draw for visitors. As uh, less reverence was attached to this collection, many of the figures fell into disrepair, and the collection received the nickname, The Ragged Regiment. Though they've been restored since, their decline in the 19th century might not have been the worst the effigies endured. During the Blitz, for safekeeping, they were hustled off to Piccadilly Tube Station in what must have been quite a surreal scene. Ordinary Londoners rubbing elbows with broken-down royal ghosts as the bombs exploded above. The use of wax funeral effigies was not restricted to England. It's not definite, but the British practice may have come from France, which produced artists like uh, Antoine Benoit, who became well-known for his representations of figures in the court of Louis XIV and was invited by James II to England to create figures there. By the 16th century, funeral effigies of French royals were also represented not as a recumbent in death, but alive, and, in fact, were treated as such during extended funeral rites, which in the case of Anne of Brittany, wife of Louis XII, for instance, included seating the figure at a table for a sumptuous send-off feast. History records a similar practice attached to the funeral rites of Charles III and lesser nobility, such as the Dukes of Lorraine, who also embraced banquets served up to funeral effigies in emulation of the royal court. Beyond Westminster's crypt, there are some other contenders for uh, forerunner of the wax museum, maybe displays of wax figures in medieval Italy. These examples are rooted in the Catholic use of ex votos, a term from Latin meaning from a vow. The vow here being a uh, promise to offer something as thanks for a prayer request that's granted. The ex voto is left at the shrine to the holy personage answering the prayer, not only as a thank you, but also as a testimony or documentation of the miracle. These, by the way, are called gratulatory ex votos from were related to congratulations, so for something that's already happened, but there are also propitiatory ex votos, uh, which are given before the fact when requesting divine favor rather than after. Votive candles, of course, are the most common form of ex votos, but uh, small paintings of the uh, miraculous granting of the prayers in Mexico or uh, tin ornaments stamped with an image representing the miracle in Greece are other forms. But the form I wanted to discuss are anatomical votives, that is, models of uh, an afflicted body part, an arm, a leg, or eye healed, or a heart for an emotional need that was met. Uh, particularly in Italy, these are made of wax. 
And this is likely a reason that the art of anatomical models created for medical study uh, first appeared in that country with its uh, epicenter in Florence. Now one doesn't always find these as uh, small anatomical or fragmentary votives. Uh, they can also represent an entire figure in wax, which is where our uh, forerunners of the Wax Museum come in. There are a couple of standout examples in Italy. The Shrine of Our Lady of Grace, uh, Le Grazia, near uh, the town of uh, Mantua in uh, Lombardy is one. It was founded around 1200 as a simple shrine built by fishermen on a swampy promontory and dedicated to the Madonna and Child that protected the fishermen and their boats. Around 200 years later, the structure was enlarged to celebrate the Virgin's protection during a time of plague. And it was soon recognized as a site of pilgrimage and miracles and began accumulating ex votos. The English journalist George Meredith describes its appearance around 1910 when he saw it in his letters. The Church of Le Grazie is one of the most curious of Italy. The walls of the building are covered with a double row of wax statues of life-size, representing a host of warriors, cardinals, bishops, kings, and popes. There is even a convict who, at the moment of being hanged, implored mercy of the all-powerful Madonna, whereupon the beam of the gallows instantly broke, and the worthy individual was restored to society. A very Doubtful benefit, after all. About 40 of these statues survive today, arranged in tiered niches that line the sanctuary walls. Also remarkable is the profusion of the uh, smaller anatomical votives that uh, cover nearly every available surface. And uh, then there's a taxidermied crocodile hanging from the ceiling. Uh, reminiscent of the giant bones displayed in some churches as we discussed in our episode on antediluvial giants, this uh, beast was hung up sometime in the 15th or 16th century. Its uh, presence is explained in a number of contradictory legends. It either escaped from a menagerie kept at the local lord's estate, or was brought back by the crusaders from the Holy Land, or it's uh, simply there to remind the faithful of the uh, temptations and dangers presented by its uh, fellow reptiles, the, the uh, serpent in Eden, or the great serpent or great beast described in the Book of Revelation. At the National Gallery of Art here in the U.S., there's a famous bust of Lorenzo de' Medici that was once thought to have been sculpted by Michelangelo. It's actually a terracotta copy of a portion of a full-figure wax original produced as an ex voto. Lorenzo was known to have commissioned ex-photos of himself in gratitude for a survival of an assassination attempt. This figure would have been one of three described in Giorgio Vasari's 1550 book, Lives of the Artists, one created by the sculptor and painter Andrea del Verrocchio, um, and Vasari describes them as built up over skeletons within of wood and splint reeds portrayed from life and painted with oils so lifelike and so well wrought that they seem no mere images of wax, but actual living men. The figure was dressed in Lorenzo's actual clothing, bloodied in the actual assassination attempt, in the same way that the figures at Madame Tussauds are dressed in authentic wardrobe. It once stood in the Basilica of the Most Holy Annunciation 
in Florence, which is the other church that grew into something resembling a wax museum. Its uh, collection of ex votos is described by a Dutch visitor, Arno van Buchel, in 1588. There is such an infinitude of votive statues and paintings that when you first enter the church, you would think that you were entering a field of cadavers. For there are statues and effigies with which the church is overfull, lifelike and life-size of wood, of stone and of wax. There one sees the suspended statues of Leo and Clement in their pontifical habits and of several kings and princes, and around them other statues of armed soldiers, horsemen and infantry. Here hang almost completely rusted swords, there helmets, lances, bows, arrows, indeed every kind of armor. In another part we see the wounded, the hanged, the tortured, the shipwrecked, the imprisoned, the sick, and the pregnant, lying in bed, all represented by statues. As with the assassination echoed in uh, Lorenzo de' Medici's uh, bloodied clothing, all these uh, chamber of horror type tableaus represent the predicaments from which the commissioners of the votives were divinely rescued. This uh, collection at the Annunziata, as the church is called locally, uh, became uh, such an attraction that it was often the first stop of uh, foreign dignitaries visiting Florence, something prioritized over whatever official meetings they may have had on the docket. And it wasn't just aristocrats, knights, and clergy that were remembered in full-size votive figures, as the church also displayed tens of thousands of small anatomical votives left by the lower classes. Built in 1250, the Annunziata drew pilgrims thanks to a miraculous painting of the Madonna, now displayed at the entrance. Legend has it that the artist found himself unable to complete the work when it came to tackling the divine face but awoke one morning to find that angelic hands had completed the task for him, giving the painting miraculous powers, I guess. By 1447, the accumulation of votives was so great that scaffolding was erected to accommodate them, and by 1448, they'd begun hanging figures from the ceilings. Already in the 14th century, the Florentine poet and novelist Franco Zacchetti wrote... There have been placed and hung so many images that if the wall hadn't been reinforced with chains a little while ago, they would have been in danger of coming down altogether with the roof. Regarding the whole thing as rather absurd, Sacchetti remarks upon two particularly bizarre votives, a wax image of a cat whose return was sought by its owner, and one of a cask of wine, the latter representing a gift made by a female parishioner to the uh, caretakers of the church on their urging. The uh, request or prayer that this votive came along with asked that the uh, woman's husband remain oblivious to the disappearance of the cask, which was given without his knowledge or permission. Eventually, this massive accumulation became a nuisance in a number of ways, including the occasional figure crashing to the ground during worship services. They were eventually moved from the sanctuary, first to a side courtyard, then to a special cloister built to house them, 
By 1630, a Florentine by the name of Ferdinando Mancini was assigned to manage the problem. And uh, in a report, he remarks that the bodies of the figures, which were made of wood and paper mache, since only the hands and heads were made of wax, which is a common practice, that these bodies were broken, worm-eaten, chewed by animals, collapsed in on themselves, and in some, fallen apart. And that the frames inside were worm-eaten, and the skeletons of wood out of which they were made therefore fell. As a result, some 20,000 votives were disposed of. Some were given to artists who might salvage materials from them, including melting down heads and hands for candle wax, while others were just burned in an immense and weird bonfire. By uh, 1786, the Holy Roman Emperor Leopold II decided the whole thing had become a disgraceful distraction, and all the figures, sadly, were removed. These uh, removals and bonfires must have caused great consternation among the Florentines, as the votive figures were regarded as much more than sculptures. They were perceived as bearing a sort of magical bond with the donors who commissioned them as a sort of a stand-in for the uh, living mortal until such time as that person could rest forever in the sanctity of the church's crypts. When uh, political tides turned against prominent individuals, as they often did in Renaissance Florence, the inevitable removal of their votive double was spoken of as the killing or murder of that personage. This uh, similarity to the use of wax dolls in witchcraft was emphasized in a 1932 study of the votives by the uh, noted art historian Abi Warburg, who wrote, The Florentines, descendants of the superstitious Etruscans, cultivated the magical use of images in the most unblushing form right down to the 17th century. The Etruscans were famous for magical practices that shaped Roman religion and culture. Among these, the practice of divination from animal organs and other rites known in Rome collectively as the Etruscan discipline. And archaeologists have uncovered in Etruscan digs uh, small models of heads and ears and eyes and organs that seem to have been offered with magical intent similar to uh, Catholic votives. Wax dolls discovered in Etruscan tombs have likewise been interpreted as magical devices representing individuals to be cursed and sent to their own graves. All of which contributed to uh, Arnobius, a uh, 4th century Christian writer, declaring of Etruria the uh, home of the Etruscans. Etruria is the originator and mother of all superstition. That sentiment is embraced by the 19th century folklorist and seminal neo-pagan writer Charles Godfrey Leland, discussed in our uh, Southern Italian Witchcraft episode. That is, in his uh, 1892 book, Etruscan Roman Remains in Popular Tradition, which laid the groundwork for his more highly influential 1899 volume, Araria, or the Gospel of the Witches. The Romans inherited the Etruscan notion that magicians might use wax images in their craft, Horace, for instance, has Canidia, a model for all later wishes of Western literature, burn wax dolls in his uh, satires. But the magical wax artifact more central to Roman life would be the masks used to represent the dead. Patrician families in ancient Rome kept in the atria of their homes collections of wax images known as imaginis maiorum, or images of the ancestors. 
Used in funerals, these were either sculpted or cast directly from the face, were removed from their place of honor in the home, and worn by family members or actors employed as professional mourners to impersonate the ancestors whom the deceased would soon be joining. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often... As with the European kings and queens we've mentioned, a wax effigy played a role in the funeral of Julius Caesar, as described by Appian of Alexandria in his Roman history. Behind Mark Antony, while he's delivering his famous speech, Somebody raised an image of Caesar himself made of wax. The body itself, as it lay on its back on the couch, could not be seen. The image was turned round and round by a mechanical device, showing the 23 wounds in all parts of the body and on the face that had been dealt to him so brutally. Sounds kind of like something from the Chamber of Horrors, doesn't it? Speaking of, I haven't quite finished Tussaud's story. The woman had quite a run, continuing to sit at the museum kiosk well into her 80s and finally dying in 1850 at the age of 89. Her sons took over the business, which was sold to a group of businessmen in 1889, while other relatives, including her great-grandson Louis, launched unaffiliated businesses bearing the family name. The uh, London Museum suffered a serious setback in 1925 when a fire broke out, consuming the entire top floor. A contemporary account from The Guardian describes the aftermath. The floor of the waxwork show was a dismal mass of burned embers mixed with the churned and sodden remnants of garments and accessories. The wax figures had simply disappeared in the streams of molten wax through which the firemen waded as they came upstairs. A bright spot amid the devastation was the survival of a talking parrot kept in the museum. At first mistaken for a wax model, it's reported that when discovered by firemen, the bird began to speak, uttering the words, This is rotten business! When day is done and shadows fall, I dream of you. But it wasn't the end of Tussauds. Of course, they're still around. There's 21 of them all over the world, but it's now owned by a conglomerate in Dubai. Not quite the same. And an end of sorts, some actually truly rotten business, did go down in April of 2016. Without public comment or fanfare, after 168 years in London, Madame Tussauds forever closed its historic Chamber of Horrors. In fact, all of their outlets no longer include this iconic element. London's Chamber of Horrors has been replaced by an interactive Sherlock Holmes experience. Of course, even that is now closed in our currently sad COVID-riddled world. But I won't leave you on such a tragic note. We'll end with a more pleasant full circle back to Vincent Price and a bit of life imitating art or art imitating life. The, the song you've been hearing could fit that category. It's Vincent Price singing over the end credits of the 1974 film Madhouse in which he plays a sinister actor as he had just the year before in 1973's Theater of Blood, reciting, Lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. 
oh, now we're really in a kind of feedback loop. Um, then there was that other moment when a wax figure imitating an actor in a film was replaced by an actor imitating a wax figure. Vincent Price relates the story in a 1982 interview. <laughs> Didn't you substitute for a waxwork and frighten yes. the daylight? One time they decided to do a gag and they took my wax figure out and put me on a thing and brought me in. And I was standing there with a syringe in the house of wax. And as the crowd came around, I moved around like this and squirted water <laughs> in the face of the thing. <laughs> she thought she'd wet her pants. It wasn't her and from that same interview, one final and somewhat recursive memory involving Madame Tussauds. It's a happier memory. Let's remember Vincent Price remembering May 27th, 1969. Well, you know, Christopher Lee and I were born the same day. He claims 10 years later, but that's a lie. And uh, Peter Cushing was born the day before, 26th of May, and, and Christopher and I was at 27th of May. Well, one time I was here doing a film with both of them, and I thought it'd be kind of fun to have a party. So I looked around for a place, and I found a marvelous place was the Chamber of Horrors in Madame Tussauds. And we had a birthday party there. It was wonderful fun. You couldn't tell who were the actors. <laughs> Vincent Price. Bless you. Thank you. everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends or even better to leave a review wherever you listen these really help us out even if it's just a star reading or even a short sentence or phrase as i mentioned at the top of the show these episodes only keep coming up because of the support of our patreon subscribers when you donate you're contributing to the more than 100 hours of work that goes into each episode uh, pledges begin at one dollar and can be edited at any time those subscribing at the $4 level or higher now receive an extra short episode in the uh, marvelous and rare format we provided a sample of in September last year. We've also added a bone-and-sickle candle featuring the skeletal Saint Notborga, as well as two different mystery kits, each one with its own unique offerings. And we still offer my Krampus book and the show soundscape you hear in the background under the narration. I definitely want to thank our new patrons, Benjamin Chilton, Will Kleinhens, Ruben Ariano, Liana Wall, and Victoria Howard. Also, uh, thanks to uh, Noah D. for upping his pledge. If you uh, haven't yet, you might want to visit our website, boneandsickle.com. There you'll find links to our Patreon, Facebook group, Twitter, and Instagram, along with uh, show notes with uh, plenty of images and some links to audio used in the program. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reitenauer, Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>